Silky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Thank you, welcome, please, the Grateful Dead. Hey everybody, welcome back to Dead to Me. So, sometime in the middle of last week, a guy I knew about 20 years ago started a Facebook page called The 1990s in Burlington, and he encouraged the couple dozen members he'd invited to post any old photographs they happened to have lying around. Well, by the weekend, there were several hundred members, and last I checked, it was up to 1,500, and it's not a big town. I personally think the page needs a trigger warning. It's kind of unsettling from my current vantage point to look at the scene two plus decades later and see all of us young again. On the other hand, it's really beautiful to look at these human beings in their full flower, having fun and creating bonds. I'm glad that there's a photographic record of all that, even if it stirs up strong and conflicting emotions. I guess it's just another weird synchronicity that I had this experience while putting together our latest episode, Lens of the Dead. It's the final show of the season, which to me seems fitting. Now, I'm not going to overplay my metaphorical hand for once, so you'll have to work all that out on your end. I will say this, like music, photographs have the power to transport us across decades in a way that's often more intimate than other media. This episode examines the photographic history of the Grateful Dead, though, like the audio archive, the record is so vast as to defy summation. So instead, we'll zoom in on one photographer, Rosie McGee, who was part of the Dead family just about from day one. Rosie began dating Phil Lesh in the early acid test days and stayed with him for four years, snapping some incredible shots along the way. Her photographic memoir... Dancing with the Dead is filled with compellingly candid pictures covering the years 1964 to 1974. Rosie's photos are great, but so are her stories. I was very moved by this book, and I'm thrilled that she's joining us a little later to talk about it. You can check out rosiemcgee.com for more information on the several versions of Dancing with the Dead, stay up to date with her appearances, and order prints. You get the picture. It's been said that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. So what is talking about photographs? Maybe Eduardo will know. I think we ought to check in. Eduardo, let's do this. So we've talked a lot about the audio and the editorial archives, but for this episode, we're going to be looking at the photographic record, which is fascinating in terms of the different eras that it depicts. And one of my favorites is the 1960s. So I'm excited that Rosie McGee, who's a dead family member, going back to the original acid tests, is joining us to talk about her photographic memoir, Dancing with the Dead. What struck me when I was looking at her shots is that her subjects are basically just kids. I mean, she was a kid herself when she took 
most of these. Which gets me wondering, what is it about young people in that era that we find so compelling a half century after the fact? I think the era itself screams youthful, irrational, exuberant <laughs> behavior, right? I mean, I think I yeah. think we want to think of the 60s as a time of innocence. And whether that's true or not, it's sort of a cultural myth that we really hold on to collectively. Yeah, it sits at the intersection of charming innocence and utter decadence. And I think that's why we probably find it so compelling. Mm-hmm. That and boomer media reinforcement. <laughs> but still, it really does seem very genuine, especially compared to... To our generation, which was steeped in ironic detachment. If you look at these photos of Grateful Dead gigs in the Panhandle or anywhere for that matter, and you check out the audience shots, and they are just in absolute rapture, and so are the people on stage. Yeah, it occurs to me that, you know, one of those litmus tests for a religious belief is whether it's sincerely held, right? And I love that phrase of a sincerely held belief. Yeah. Because I think we look at those pictures and it really does seem, especially to those of us who grew up in a less optimistic and hopeful <laughs> yeah. for those of us who grew up when we did, it seems unlikely that something that, that pure and that true could have really existed. But I think there is this sense that the participants in it really believed in it. It reminds me of that famous Hunter S. Thompson passage from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I could recite as a Hunter S. Thompson impression, but it would just come out like William Shatner, so I won't. <laughs> but it says, San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be part of. Maybe it meant something, maybe not. In the long run, no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time and the world. Of course, he follows it up shortly after with... Now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west, and with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. Wow. And I think some of these old photographs really do give you a sense of the meaning of those words or what those words are trying to convey. Hmm. These kids really were brought together by a shared belief, an animating spirit, and it might not have been an incredibly specific belief, but it nonetheless inspired a common energy and a collective desire for transformation. I think the fact that there was no clear organizing principle is one of those things that keeps it true in my eyes. Yeah, and we can say the same thing about the Grateful Dead and how. Right. But things really did change pretty quickly in the San Francisco scene after a brief moment of bliss. That high watermark that Thompson describes did recede. And for folks like Rosie McGee and the Dead family, the summer of love actually happened before the media created situation that brought thousands of kids to San Francisco in 1967. On the Dead to Me Twitter, we recently posted an article called The Death of the Hippies. Check the show notes which featured the photos of Joe Sandberg, who was on the streets of San Francisco in the summer of 67. The picture, no pun intended, is actually pretty grim. Rampant homelessness, hard drug abuse, all kinds of predation. It wasn't exactly the flowers and love vibe that drew all the kids out there. And earlier you and I were talking about the classic Joan Didion essay, Slouching Toward Bethlehem, where she laments what's happening to these kids, but at the same time castigates them for their foolishly misguided expectations. Yeah, I always go right to that. When we talk about the summer of love, for me, it's kind of now inseparable from that long form essay. And it's partly because... 
you know, her writing is so vivid that it might as well be a photograph. Yeah, that is so spot on. But she was also a little bit older than the kids she was writing about, right? She, as an older person, was observing what she pictured as kind of this fraying of societal norms and a kind of social disintegration, which to me mirrors the sort of personal LSD trip. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword when your ego melts away like that. I think collectively, uh, these young people were kind of undoing society. And to our earlier point, they didn't really know what they were going to raise up uh, yeah, and its place. And what came out of it in Didion's essay is, you know, seven-year-olds on acid. Man, and there are weird parallels to our current time period, too. There's a segment of young people who just seemingly want to tear everything down. And, you know, the hippies wanted to reshape society, but I think they did it from a different set of values. And then, of course, you have folks who were actually alive back then, and somehow they've transformed into Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. And there's this weird thing where everybody wants to go back to some other time period when things were magically great. But when we look back, things weren't really ever great. It's easy to want to be the 18-year-old kid in 1967, but when I read Didion's essay, I feel like I would be more likely to be the person in her 30s watching it all and just thinking, do these kids know what they're doing? (laughs) No, kids never know what they're doing. That's why they're kids. But some (laughs) of them really did have that honest-to-goodness spirit of wanting to make the world a better place. Yes. I mean, obviously, it went off the rails more than a few times, but there was purity in the intent. And now those kids are much older, and luckily for this episode, some of them kept photographs. Of course, I bet anyone who's still with us who is part of that scene must have a whole bunch of reactions to seeing themselves all those years ago. I mean, even fans who went to shows in the 80s and 90s aren't immune to the chronological vertigo that can come from looking at parking lot pictures, for example. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think about being a deadhead with the passage of time? I think of time as basically this kind of essential ingredient in my appreciation of the dead and how I see the music. Yeah, I've also heard that it's a flat circle, (laughs) (laughs) but it does play tricks on us. Yeah, I just had this memory the other day of driving to the fucking opening night of The Phantom Menace. Oh my God, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, and I was listening to, I think it was Boston Hall Show. I think it was 61276. Wow, great recall. So in 1999, Garcia had been dead for four years. And I remember just thinking that a time when he was alive seemed so distant to me. (laughs) That's not even half a decade. Yeah. And of course, now in hindsight, I'm like, I was pretty close to it. (laughs) You were indeed. (laughs) But there's this fascinating way in which time, you know, the same way that the proverbial river can cut through stones and and change the face of the landscape. That's sort of time acting on the dead for me. Mm -hmm. Just throw on an old bootleg and look at some old photos. You've got yourself a time machine. Yeah. There's something I said on our first episode that makes a good bookend for this last episode of the season and that was comparing the Grateful Dead to the Victorian age steam engine from Back to the Future 3 <laughs> that Doc Brown wires up with the flux capacitor. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Runs real good. Takes a minute to get warmed up.
Okay, okay, I'm awake, I swear. And you know what? I think it's probably time to... In 1978, at the ripe old age of 17, Jay Blakesburg attended the Grateful Dead show at the New Jersey's Meadowlands Arena and snapped his very first photos of the band. Since then, Blakesburg has shot numerous musical acts, including Tom Waits, Radiohead, The Pixies, Santana, Talking Heads, Joni Mitchell, Tom Petty, Neil Young, and many more. But no matter the assignment, he remained a deadhead through and through. In fact, the band tapped him to contribute photos to the album's Dead Set, Reckoning, and Dylan and the Dead. In 2002, Blakesburg published a coffee table book featuring his photos of the dead called Between the Dark and Light. Some 15 years later, he co-edited another photographic collection, Eyes of the World, which also features the works of this episode's special guest, Rosie McGee. A go-to rock photographer for magazines, record labels, and artists, Blakesburg is also at home with the moving image. He co-directed a 2006 concert film featuring Phil Lesh and Friends and produced and directed live footage for such music festivals as Lollapalooza and Mountain Jam. His reputation in the Dead Family led to his helming videos for Further, String Cheese Incident, Widespread Panic, The Allman Brothers Band, The Black Crows, and more. In the spring of 2009, Blakesburg went on tour with the surviving members of the Grateful Dead as their official photographer and videographer. More recently, he's hosted exhibits and conversations at various venues around the country and can still be found at any number of rock shows, trusty camera in hand. Not bad for a teenage deadhead from Jersey. I am so excited to talk to our next guest, the final guest of season one of Dead to Me. Rosie McGee is an author and photographer whose photographic memoirs, Dancing with the Dead, is one of the coolest insider accounts of the band that I have ever come across. It's charming, it's hilarious, it's touching, it's a window into a time and place that continues to capture our imagination. So what do you say we say hello to Rosie McGee? Hey, Rosie. Welcome to Dead to Me. Thank you. On this show, we say that everything we talk about is through the lens of the dead. But in this instance, we're going to be talking about the dead through your lens. Specifically, this incredible photographic memoir that you published called Dancing with the Dead. I can imagine it must have been a fairly intense experience going back through all of that and getting your thoughts down on paper. Could you tell us a little bit about how the book came together? Well, first of all, it wasn't an all-at-once linear process. Uh It was over a period of years, and I started with the photos and not with the stories. The stories were much later, and it was kind of fits and starts over some number of years. Mm -hmm. And the photos, of course, were back in the days of film. Right. So I took all these photos for a number of years and then dragged these boxes of negatives and slides around with me. I moved quite a bit, but I always took these photos with me, along with all the other photos that I'd taken in my lifetime. And uh, 
I started compiling photos for books that never happened about the Grateful Dead. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that's how it started. Ah, so other people's projects. Then. Yeah, other people's projects. There was a project that uh, came out of the San Rafael Grateful Dead office, for example, in the early 80s. Mm that was going to be called the California Book of the Dead. Okay. And they gathered all these photos, and I ended up losing some negatives in that process. But it never happened. It never came together. And some of the photos were returned to the photographers. I mean, you got to understand, for your listeners that are in the digital age, uh, in those days, it was all film. Yeah. And there weren't even any scanners. Scanners had not been invented. Right. Digital didn't exist. And so if a publisher wanted to use one of my photos, I would first find out who they were. And, you know, early days, I I took some bad chances, got ripped off. Oh, no. But I would have to send the original, either a negative or a color slide. Or in some cases, I could get away with a really good print. Sure. And then when they had finished with the publication process, they would return, presumably, return... (laughs) The photo to me. But you were always taking a risk with that. Of course, of course. And at first, it was like no big deal, but then I started to not get them back, and I realized, well, I had to vet them a little more carefully. (laughs) Yeah, it's enough to make you maybe want to do it yourself, but then again, that was probably also really difficult. Self-publishing wasn't a thing back then. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I was just, you know, all by myself with boxes of photos. But eventually some of these photos did get published in other people's projects, right? Uh, The first time that my photos were used by legitimate organization in a book was David Gans and Peter Simon in 1986 came to me regarding their upcoming book, Playing in the Band, and they contracted with me to use some of my photos in that book, which they did. Yeah. And they returned them to me. You know, woo-hoo. Good job. Yeah, really. And then a couple of years later, Gerilyn Brandelius compiled this wonderful book that uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's the Grateful Dead family album. Uh, I think I've seen it on eBay, and I've definitely thought about picking it up. Yeah, it was out of print for a long time, and Gerilyn right. has succeeded recently in having it reprinted for the first time, just in the last few months. Oh, terrific. And so uh, you'll be able to get it through Gerilyn. Great. But anyway, she came to me and this Grateful Dead family album was a compilation of the first 25 years. Okay. But she ended up using 39 of my photos and it was the first time that my writing had ever been published. Oh, cool. So that was a big thrill for me. I bet. She knew my stories, and and she said, hey, why don't you write a few essays, Mm -hmm. you know, write about what you've talked about. And so that happened. Terrific. And then over the next 15 years, there was this increased interest in the dead, Mm -hmm. more books, more films, magazine articles, and everything. And And you've got the stash. I'm dragging the boxes around, (laughs) you know. And even if you manage to settle down for a minute, I imagine it takes some time to go through all of that. Well, I lived at the Grand Canyon, Grand Canyon National Park. I worked there for seven years from 2003 to 2010. Beautiful. And during that time, I had a lot of off time where I... Mm -hmm didn't have a lot of things to do. So I started methodically scanning my photos. By then, 
there were scanners. Well, that helps until you decide to move again, I guess. Oh, I stayed in one place for seven years, uh. although I did move five times in those seven years that I was there. <laughs> but anyway, I started scanning the photos and started thinking about putting together a coffee table book of the photos. By then, I was well aware how people regarded my photos, that they were historical documents, sure, that people right. liked them, and I was one of the only photographers that had taken pictures in the earliest days. You were present at birth. Yeah, present at birth. <laughs> and so during that time I was at the Grand Canyon, I started also compiling the stories in my computer. Uh -huh. And I would do what I call a, a brain dump. You know, I'd think of an incident or think of a story. And I'd sit down and I'd just freeform without censoring myself, without you know, worrying about who might see this later, you know, <laughs> right. you know, telling the secrets, whatever. I would just do a brain dump into the computer, get it out of my head, put it in the computer, save the file and put it away. That's great. Even if at the time you weren't sure what shape it would take. I didn't really have any intentions then of publishing the stories. Right. And uh, I have to laugh. The reason I didn't have the thought of publishing the stories was that my parents were still alive. Oh, wow. Well, that was very thoughtful of you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, obviously, your adventures with the Grateful Dead are the focus of the book. But I also enjoyed the story of your childhood and teenage years, coming to America from Paris as a toddler, and your introduction into the world of photography with your dad. Uh, he developed his own pictures and sometimes you got to observe and participate going by what you wrote in the book I'd say your relationship with your parents was sometimes strained but here was an opportunity for you to discover something that you really liked which was photography could you talk a little bit more about how you first fell into that world yes my my relationship with my parents was somewhat strained uh, my relationship particularly with my mother was kind of adversarial. I, I Very early on, I was headstrong. I was independent. Yeah. I was uh, a fledgling free spirit, although I didn't know it yet. <laughs> right. And they were older mm -hmm. than my friend's parents. We were immigrants from France, and they were, you know, European. They were very serious. Got it. And there wasn't just a lot of laughter and goofiness and fun and any of that stuff mm -hmm. in my growing up. Right. And so I kind of lived in a fantasy world right. from very, very early on. Well, fantasy worlds are often quite romantic. <laughs> in the afterword of my book, I coined a phrase about myself. I said, my life was backlit by romantic delusion. <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> and I mean, I was young and uh, from very early I was a drama student. Well there's a type. <laughs> so anyway around 11 or 12 my dad let me borrow his camera to document a school event and it wasn't so much about my dad until later. It was about having this camera in my hand. That had to have felt empowering for you. I was very socially awkward and it gave me something to do. Sure. And it gave me a, an identity, a new identity. I was the girl with the camera. Yeah, that's so cool. But I also was always kind of quiet and separate 
and it fit right in with my nature of being an observer and standing back and being behind the scenes and all of that. I also love the camera itself. Ah, so like the mechanical aspects of it. Yeah, I'm a a bit of a gearhead. (laughs) Nice. Truth be told, I only discovered it then, this beautifully tooled tool. (laughs) Right. There was something about it, having it in my hands. And then the final piece was when my dad took me with him into the dark room where he and a partner were developing mural-sized prints for the restaurants in Fisherman's Wharf. Interesting. And so when I first saw a photograph come to life in the developer, it was in a tray that was eight feet long. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty cool. You know, people that experience photography for the first time when it was film will always tell you about their first time in the darkroom where they see a piece of blank paper comes to life in the developer. Yeah. But in my case, it was eight feet long. (laughs) Wow. So it was magic. Yeah, you're hooked. And it became a habit. And for whatever reason, from then on, I was compelled to document my life with photos whenever I had a camera available to me, which wasn't always. Well, it was often enough for you to eventually be able to populate this book, thank goodness. But it was different back then. You didn't just have a phone in your pocket. Yeah, there were times even during those years where I didn't have a camera. And you got to remember that film and developing were expensive. Oh, for sure. It costs money. I mean, you buy a roll of film back in the 60s for five bucks and then maybe 15 bucks to have them developed and printed. And you didn't know what you were going to get. Right. It's so true. So the camera definitely helped you forge an identity and eventually would lead to you documenting a lot of your adventures with the Grateful Dead. But even before that, it's pretty clear from your stories that this free spirit of yours was starting to emerge. Like that time you got fired from the detective agency, which is not something that everyone can say. (laughs) (laughs) That was my first job. Yeah, I worked for the Burns detective agency when I was 17 years old. Wow. I got fired for insubordination. (laughs) At this point, I'm pretty proud of that. Well, as you should be. (laughs) But tell me, what does that actually mean in the context of detective agencies? Well, what it meant was I was uh, one of the secretaries for the investigation department, and I typed up the surveillance reports. Wow. And this public figure in San Francisco at the time Uh, suspected that his wife was having an affair. Of course. And so he hired us to uh, do a surveillance on her and take pictures and, you know, get the goods on her. (laughs) Yikes. And one of the secretaries was assigned to that and typed up the reports. And one day she accidentally sent a report to the wife. (laughs) Oh, no. It's like the worst reply all ever. I mean, big brouhaha. You can imagine. Crazy. And so the detective agency was run by a bunch of former FBI agents. Uh Uh-huh who were all, like, in love with J. Edgar Hoover and the whole... <laughs> Classic 50s G-men. Yeah, I mean, you're not kidding. They were stereotypes. So here I am, I'm 17 years old, it's my first job, and one by one they take each of the secretaries into a semi-darkened office to interrogate her Awful. about who was the one that made the mistake. It could have been any of the six of us. Right. And uh, when they cut to me, being the honest soul that I've always been, uh-huh. when they asked me, if you knew, would you tell us? I said no. 
<laughs> you are out of there. I knew who it was, of you know. Course. <laughs> that is just too much. But during that whole period, you were still involved in your theater community. And it just sounds like you had an incredible run of Northern California as kids. It was wonderful. Yeah. And everybody's probably like, oh, when are you going to get to the Grateful Dead stuff? But another story you tell that I absolutely loved was, okay, look. When I was a kid growing up in the late 70s and early 80s, I used to love the show WKRP in Cincinnati. When you were a little kid? <laughs> yeah. No, please. <laughs> well, I was a little kid. I know. I'm just teasing you. <laughs> but really, I, I did love the show and especially loved the character Johnny Fever, who was, of course, played by Howard Hessman. And back then, I had no idea that he got his start as a member of the improv comedy troupe, the committee. And you were friends with those folks, including Hessman. Right. I imagine they were probably almost as wild as the Grateful Dead. <laughs> well, they were different. They were really smart guys. And the funny thing, and I talk about this in my book, is that in order to do night after night after night, to do improv comedy in front of an audience who would make suggestions, right. make up a skit about this, mm -hmm. they were completely up to date with current events right. and and everything. I mean, they read newspapers and magazines voraciously. They were always together. And whenever they were together, any two of them or more in a room, they were on. <laughs> yeah. You know, they would be riffing back and forth with each other. Mm -hmm. And you're going to hear me say naive teenager a thousand <laughs> times in this interview because that whole period, my jaw was always dropping, but I loved it. I'll bet. But it's so important for young people to have somewhat older, cooler, hipper people initiate them into this stuff. And this does tie back into the story because Howard Hessman was the guy who introduced you to Tom Big Daddy Donahue, the legendary FM broadcaster, label owner, and show promoter. And that was kind of your entree into the whole rock and roll universe, right? That's true. Tom Donahue, when I met him, he was a top 40 DJ, very popular mm -hmm. in the San Francisco Bay Area at KYA AM and FM. And Howard brought me to the studio one evening to visit with Tom. And for some reason, Tom liked me and invited me to come back. And I went back a bunch of times. And then he came to understand my situation, which was I was 18 or 19, mm -hmm. and I was dying to get out of my parents' home, but I just didn't earn enough money. I had this really boring, straight job. And he eventually hired me to come and work for him at his company, which was Autumn Records. Right, yeah. And they also had Tempo Productions, where he and his partner, Bobby Mitchell, who was also a DJ, would put on these top 40 marathon shows at the Cow Palace. Legendary, yeah. And so I took the job. I moved out of my parents. I was so excited, <laughs> you know, finally, because I was dying there. Yeah. And now I had my own place on Van Ness and Broadway, the rent was $65 a month. <laughs> in San Francisco. <laughs> For a large studio apartment. Yeah, in San Francisco. <laughs> and I had a car. Wow. 
and I was able to just do whatever I wanted, and that was uh, it was very liberating. That first taste of freedom. Oh my goodness, yeah. And all thanks to Tom Donahue, who is endlessly fascinating to me. It just seems like they don't make him like that anymore. This guy had a deep knowledge of music and a vision to go with it, and he basically transformed the music industry just out of his passion. But what do you remember about him most as a person? He was very worldly. He was culturally smart, he was witty, he was theatrical, he was sarcastic, he was loud, (laughs) you know, and honestly, I have no idea why he and his then-girlfriend, Rachel, who became his wife later, why they even let me hang out with them. Well, everybody likes a pet project, and it sounds like you were it. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're right. I I think I amused him. <laughs> but you did describe working with Tom as the juice that changed your life's direction. It was the time working the shows at the Cow Palace where I was assigned to do backstage logistics. And he would do these shows with like seven acts and they would all be flying in from LA or wherever, mostly yeah. from LA if they were flying in. And my job was to get the car sent to the airport, pick him up, get him to the Cow Palace, (laughs) get him on stage at the right time, get them back off stage, back in the limo, you know, so forth. (laughs) That sounds like a whirlwind. Yeah, it was a whirlwind. It was exciting. I was good at it, which was exciting to me. I'd never had a job like that Yeah. where I could use my organizational skills and my energy in a way that was so much fun. I mean, there was... (laughs) Plus, there was all the music and everything. And up until then, I had been a theater major, and I'd been appearing Mm -hmm. in little theater plays. And my whole world was behind the scenes in theater. And I just made this migration to behind the scenes in rock and roll. And at that point in your life, you're suddenly being introduced to and spending time with so many now legendary artists and actors and musicians. I really loved your story about you performing at an open mic type event, you know, singing with your guitar, and then after seeing Janis Joplin and being like, oh, maybe not for me. (laughs) Well, yeah. During those years, I was hanging out a lot in North Beach, Mm -hmm. and there was uh, the coffee gallery was a well-known spot. Right. Uh, In fact, Yorma and Janis appeared there a number of times. He would accompany her. But I always wanted to be a singer. Mm Mm-hmm but I don't have any talent. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just, I mean, I, oh, it, boy. <laughs> well, I, I learned it by watching Janice Joplin. <laughs> no, what I would do when it, in those days is I would uh, translate Bob Dylan songs into French. Oh, that's adorable. And, and then sing them. <laughs> that is the nerdiest thing ever. If you did that on YouTube today, well, <laughs> you'd be a superstar. <laughs> I'd get a million followers, yeah. <laughs> Easily. <laughs> Except I'd still have to sing and nobody wants to hear that. Come on. It really is amazing, though, uh, from my vantage point. So many of these characters are almost mythological. There's Janice and so many others, like your brief, intimate encounter with Lenny Bruce, for example. And that actually ties in at least somewhat because Jerry Garcia actually had a job transcribing Lenny's sets as part of his courtroom defense. <laughs> really? I, yeah. I, yeah, I'm what? not making that up. I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> this was like one of his jobs, just like you at the detective agency. Yeah, so how many times did he say fuck? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can see Garcia's eyebrow go up every single time. 
<laughs> but, you know, to me, these really are mythological figures. I, I think about people like Lenny Bruce and Neil Cassidy, for example. But for you, they were very real human beings. Is it weird to see people you knew become the subjects of fascination by folks like me who weren't actually there? I don't know about weird. Um, back then, especially after a few years, and I realized that the, particularly my musician friends were going to, if they were good, if they hit it mm-hmm. just right, they were going to become more well-known. Maybe they were going to become right. rich and famous. And I was happy for them when that happened. I was comfortable with them. I just knew them as human beings. And it didn't get weird until things get to the worship stage. Yeah, I could see that. Let's say I'm hanging out with Paul Kantner and Grace Slick, and I read some article where somebody is making all these crazy assumptions about them and everything, and right. and we can just laugh. Just go, did you read this? This is ridiculous, you know. <laughs> but, you know, when I see... St. Jerome, Right. I'm real uncomfortable with some of what has happened over the years about Jerry. I mean, if he would be able to perceive it himself, which maybe he is, I don't know. Right. He'd hate it. Yeah, it seems fundamentally disrespectful to the supposed object of your adoration if you violate one of the core tenets of his philosophy, which was... Don't put me on a fucking pedestal. Right, right. So let's talk about how you actually fell into the Grateful Dead family. There's a great scene in your book where you describe going to the very first acid test, I believe. And that was when you met Phil Lesh. And it really does sort of seem like a cosmic destiny moment. Well, this is back in December of 1965. Wow. Yeah, you weren't born yet. <laughs> Getting there. <laughs> Not quite. Things were warming up. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So through Donahue, I had met the Grateful Dead. Uh, They weren't even the Grateful Dead yet. They had just let go of the name the Warlocks. Right, yeah. And they hadn't yet become the Grateful Dead. And Donahue wanted to bring him into a studio to cut a demo of five or six songs to see if he would be interested in signing them Mm -hmm. for Autumn Records. So they cooked up a name the emergency crew and they went into the studio and I was there that night and I met them briefly. Wow. So a few weeks later, I was getting ready to leave a party in San Francisco. It was probably around 11 o'clock at night. I don't know. Late. And several of my friends there at the party had heard about something that they didn't know what it was, but they heard about this acid test (laughs) that was taking place in Muir Beach at the little lodge there. Right. And they wanted to go. And so I had the car. Right. So I agreed to drive them there and just check it out. Well, <laughs> anybody that's listening that knows the route, 11 o'clock at night, smoking your brains out on weed, <laughs> driving a VW bug from San Francisco over Mount Tam to Muir Beach. Yeah. In the dark is uh, it's rather a daunting thing, and it takes forever. <laughs> and on weed. So by the time we got there, the party was well over, and the dead were packing up their gear to put into their vehicle, which at the time was Bill Kreutzmann's station wagon. <laughs> Classic drummer ride, yeah. And, um, well, first I should say that they had been taken acid. As one does at an acid test, yeah. I hadn't. Ah, uh. I was pretty high on pot, but that was about it. So I saw Phil standing there, kind of staring into outer space somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I went over and, and 
gave him a hug, Aww, you know. Which he probably needed. And he wouldn't let go. <laughs> Why would he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it tethered him back to Earth. Yeah, and that was that, huh? Yeah, it became an embrace, and uh, I invited him to come back to the city with me. And our first date, first actual date was a week later when we went to the Palo Alto acid test. Unbelievable. And we were together for over four years after that. I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but you went on your first date to an acid test. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I guess that's just how you kids rolled. <laughs> yeah, come on down, get high with me and see what happens. <laughs> and another opportunity to get high and see what happens was The Human Being, which took place back in 1967. I was recently doing some research for a related project and looking at footage from the Bean, and there you were dancing up a storm is incredible and whoever filmed that seemed to be really into your dancing because you're in it a lot well yeah i am in there a lot and i wonder if they were not taken more by my see-through dress <laughs> and no bra <laughs> yeah well that might have had something to do with it but i also think you just seemed so free in the moment yeah i was that was one of the best, happiest memories I have in my life. That is beautiful. Can you tell me more about that day and what the human being meant for you and the folks in the Bay Area then? Yeah, the human being was also known as a gathering of the tribes. This was in January 14th of 1967, and it was organized to bring together these small groups of like-minded folks from North Beach and Berkeley and the peninsula and the hate who might never have met who mostly didn't know about each other right the beat scene in north beach mm -hmm. the largely politically minded berkeley scene right but what we all had in common was countercultural minds love of getting high smoking weed <laughs> music and wanting to create a more harmonious society. Yeah. But we didn't know that there were a bunch of us out there. Right. The BN was held at the polo fields in Golden Gate Park, which is a very large grassy area. And mostly through word of mouth and a few posters and a few notices in the underground newspapers, 20,000 people showed up. Unbelievable. 20,000 people. And we were all just like looking around and going, Oh, my God, how many of us there are. Wow, what a moment. It was a moment. It was a huge moment. You know, there was poetry readings, there were speeches, yeah. and there was music. And I don't know what percentage, but I'm willing to say well over half of the 20,000 people took acid. Well, I have heard stories about Bear moving through the crowd with his latest batch of white lightning. Well, no, he had his minions. <laughs> <laughs> Of course he did. His minions were wandering through the crowd. <laughs> well, thanks for setting me straight. No pun intended. So this was obviously a big deal. The thing about the BN, it was a pivotal day, not only because we all recognized each other and had this wonderful day of music and community and all of that, but the mainstream media was there. Right, yeah. And they filmed it, and they took notes, and they took pictures. And the next thing you know... It's all over America, Yep. and they just got all excited about the scene, 
and somebody coined the phrase summer of love and they started advertising hey come to san francisco wear flowers in your hair and they did but your summer of love was actually the previous year right and it was i think much more of a family kind of vibe that's how i put it yeah i mean a year previous we were in the hate with all these other san francisco bands and the artists and yeah. the actors and our kids and our dogs and <laughs> and we were all just a group of 300 friends. That's so cool. The dead would rent a couple of flatbed trucks, put them back to back, get a generator, and then go into the panhandle or into the park and do a free concert spontaneously. And so fun. Everybody would just stream down from the different parts of the neighborhood. And we had a wonderful time. But all of that fun seems like it was harder to pull off once so many people started showing up in town from elsewhere. I call it the so-called summer of love. Right. 1967, with all that media attention and everything, over 100,000 kids descended upon the Haight-Ashbury in the summer of 67. Wow. I mean, that's a public health and safety thing. Yeah, public safety. They didn't have any money. They were looking for something that actually didn't exist for them. Yeah. They didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and they were, you know, looking for a good time. And some of them found a good time and some of them found a bad time. Yeah, no doubt about it. But before any of that went down, you actually had an idyllic, though relatively brief stay at a location that will be familiar familiar to anyone who's interested in dead lore, Alampali, which has a long history connected to Native Americans in the area. And you guys ended up at Alampali when you were trying to escape from L.A. after the band was down there trying to break into the industry. Didn't quite work out that way. Can you tell us more about that whole chain of events? When I first met Phil and started dating him, this was late 65, early 66, the band had moved down to L.A. for a few months with Owsley and the pranksters. They had been doing these acid tests up in the Bay Area, and for some reason, uh, the pranksters decided to carry it down to L.A. and try to put on some tests there, and so they moved down there. Well, the way I put it is the circus left town and took my boyfriend with it, <laughs> and, you know, my new boyfriend. Come on, guys. And so when he asked me to join him in L.A., I did. In Owsley's House of Horrors. <laughs> well, if you were a vegetarian, I would call it a House of Horrors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he was basically forcing you guys to only eat meat, right? Well, some dairy. Uh, yeah, the only reason there was milk in the fridge is because we had a two-year-old kid in the house. Owsley was paying for everything, right. and he was paying the rent. He was paying for the gear for the guys. He was paying for the food. So he said, this is what you're going to eat, which was <laughs> strictly meat and eggs. Damn. I remember one time Billy going out and buying a bunch of candy bars. <laughs> <laughs> When Owsley was away. The true contraband. <laughs> the, the, the true contraband. Right. But you ended up busting the gang out of Owsley's vegetarian house of horrors when you found that property at Alampali, right? What happened was uh, there we were in this house in L.A., had no gigs, had no money. And meanwhile, up in San Francisco... The ballroom scene was in full flower, yeah. and every weekend there was music, everybody was having a blast, and, you know, musicians live to play. They sure do. And the dead, you know, they said, we got to go back. Yeah. We got to go back. So Melissa, who was Owsley's girlfriend, 
and I were sent back up to San Francisco to find a place for us to rent Mm -hmm. that would have at least eight to ten bedrooms. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And, you know, it it was a daunting proposition. Uh, I, I just, when I was thinking about talking with you today, I remembered something I hadn't thought about for a long time, which was before I found Olympali for us to rent, mm-hmm. we looked at a couple of other places. And one was a really nice mansion in Pacific Heights. Uh-huh. And we were given the tour by the butler. Oh, come on. (laughs) And Melissa and I kept looking at each other and were trying not to bust out laughing. There was no way we were going to get to rent this place. Yeah, I mean, wait till they see Pigpen. (laughs) Yeah, right. But anyway, so I found uh, Olimpali in a want ad in the paper. And it was available for $1,100. Unbelievable. For six weeks. Yeah, you weren't actually there that long. No. It's got such a legend about it that people assume that we lived there for years. (laughs) Well, everyone sees your awesome photographs and hears those stories about the parties around the pool and it's like nirvana. But it really does look like you all had a wonderful time. Yeah, what's not to be happy about? It was (laughs) the month of June and half of July. (laughs) Yeah, just really good vibes there. And a lot of history, too, as I understand it. Olympali is now a state park. Beautiful. And you can actually go on the property. And it's got a really interesting history. It was the place of a Miwok Indian village. Interesting. And then it became part of a Spanish land grant. Uh-huh. I mean, it has a great history. Sounds it. And then somewhere in the middle of all that, there's a little six-week thing where the Grateful Dead lived there. <laughs> you know? Well, from the pictures, you all looked so delighted. You looked less delighted at the drug bust at 710 Ashbury. <laughs> there's this amazing shot of you that you obviously didn't take. You're coming down the steps of 710 handcuffed to Bob Weir. And you look a little uncomfortable. I mean, it was all over the papers. Your dad saw it, right? When the cops came to bust us at 710 Ashbury, they brought the Chronicle newspaper photographer with them in the wagon to publicize it. And so he's the one that took those photos. And then the next day, there was the big thing in the paper about it. That photo actually didn't appear in the paper, but my name did. Ah. But the photo did appear in the very first issue of Rolling Stone. (laughs) So there's that. Yeah. So your dad saw your name in the paper, basically. Yeah, he was reading the morning paper. And of course, on the front page, it was ironically a picture of Pigpen, who didn't even smoke weed. I know, poor guy. But he had the requisite outlaw look that was going to sell newspapers. You know, Grateful Dad busted. Look at this guy, you know. (laughs) Yep. So what was your dad's reaction to all this? His reaction was really... Really interesting. He took me aside mm-hmm. next time he saw me and he berated me for getting caught <laughs> smoking weed. Oh. Not for smoking weed. Unbelievable. He was in Algeria in the 40s and I'm thinking he wasn't too shocked. <laughs> oh, that's great. But back to the photos that you did take. Uh, I loved the shots from Columbia University during the student strike. And the thing that really wowed me about those is they look so fresh like they could have been taken yesterday there's this electricity about them well i take that as a compliment because to me the best photos are timeless yeah and intimate and evocative too Another series that stood out for me were the shots that you took at Mickey's Ranch with 
the band and friends and yeah. all the kids. It's just such a beautiful environment and such naturalistic photographs. But it seems like if you hung out for too long, you'd probably get put to work. <laughs> I mean, that was definitely the case back when you lived with the band. You refer to it jokingly in the book as women's work, just endless trips to the laundromat and cooking for a gazillion people. Yeah, the women did the laundry, the women did the cooking and, and so forth. But you know what? I can't speak for the other women. For myself, I was never bothered by what chores I could do to contribute to the functioning of the household. They got to get done. In a way, it was traditional in that it was the guys in the band who were doing the work and earning the money. Right. And the women kept things humming. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was not traditional in any other way. <laughs> right. But we all pitched in with whatever we needed to do when we needed to do it. It was no big deal. Right. And in so many other ways, you actually were experiencing a level of personal freedom that would have been totally foreign to the previous generation. I considered myself liberated. From the moment I left my parents' house, I did what I wanted to do, and I arranged my life how I wanted to arrange it. And at that point, I had made the choice to go live with Phil and just see where that adventure took me. <laughs> Quite a few places. <laughs> Completely changed my life. But yeah. but it was a conscious choice of, hey, it's an adventure. I really like this guy. Let's see where it goes. And there I went. Yeah. And you actually stayed a member of the Grateful Dead family even after you and Phil broke up. I loved the stories in the book about your going back to Paris after all those years when the band got invited to play. It's pretty obvious how indispensable your translation skills were on that 1971 trip from logistics to dealing with unscrupulous promoters to last minute vehicle replacements and negotiations with the locals. You also took some incredible photos. I really loved the ones with the band at the Eiffel Tower. What do you remember about that day? That was really a high point. I mean, even to this day, I was born in Paris, and I have a real heartfelt attachment to it in a traditional sense, you know, old Paris. And to be able to introduce my brothers Mm. in the Grateful Dead, people that I love, to bring them to the Eiffel Tower, you know, it was like herding cats, of course, but... (laughs) And then standing on the second floor platform looking out at the city of my birth beautiful and you know they really appreciated it but you got to understand the month of june in paris at the eiffel tower you couldn't pick a time that was more crowded (laughs) right yeah so it was pretty crazy and Mm -hmm. you know we're just going along trying to come out of the elevator and not lose anybody in our group (laughs) and jerry comes around the corner of the elevator door and practically collides with this guy with shoulder length red hair Uh who turns out is from mill valley wow (laughs) And he just goes, Jerry Garcia, what? The odds, that is so strange. I mean, it was like so, so bizarre. And uh, it was just a fun encounter. Absolutely. And it was just a, a wonderful melding of 
two parts of myself. That's so beautiful. And you kept finding new opportunities to discover aspects of yourself within that community and also to serve that community as it evolved and went in new directions. I'm thinking in particular of Alembic, the audio research and development wing of The Grateful Dead, where you worked for a time. Can you tell us a little bit more about Alembic? Well, Alembic, uh, the dead had a warehouse out in uh, Ignacio, Novato, where that was their rehearsal hall, their warehouse, where they kept their gear. They had their office there. And they also did a little bit of recording there as well. And in late 68, I think it was, Owsley, who at the time was uh, the Dead's sound guy, and uh, Ron and Susan Wickersham got together and formed Alembic. And it was basically a research and development effort to improve the quality of the sound of both the PA and the guitars and the basses and tinker with stuff and make it better. Right. And so at the time, Alembic was managing the PA and the sound and the recording for the dead. When the dead went on the road, Alembic did the PA. So we all got to know each other back then. I was still with Phil at the time, and and uh, we were on the road together, and we were home at the rehearsal right, hall. Right, yeah. Then in the summer of 1970, Warner Brothers, who the dead were contracted to as a record label, but they mm-hmm. also had Warner Brothers movies, yeah. they hired the dead to be the house band for a cross-country caravan that would mount many festivals along the way and film the whole thing. We jokingly called it a Woodstock on Wheels. <laughs> oh, record companies. Actually, it was Tom Donahue who got them to go for this idea. That's right. The Woodstock film had been hugely successful right. just recently, and so they thought, okay, well, summer's coming, let's put it on the road and, and then make a film and we'll make a bunch of money and and so forth. <laughs> but it didn't quite turn out that way. Well, no. I devote a whole chapter to it. It was called The Medicine Ball Caravan, and I devote a whole chapter in my book to it. It was one of the crazy episodes of my life. It did seem pretty intense at times. It was crazy. And, but you did get a really nice tie-dye teepee out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and you also got to bond with the Olympic people more. Well, the night before the departure, and we're talking about 125 people in a caravan with I don't know how many buses and trucks and vehicles right. and all of that. The night before they were going to take off across the Golden Gate Bridge, John McIntyre, who was the Dead's manager at the time, wisely, <laughs> wisest thing he ever did for them, <laughs> yeah. he pulled the plug on their participation uh-huh. and said they're not going because he realized that logistics were not lining up, that yeah. there was not going to be food, there was not going to be lodging, it was oh, going to be a disaster for the band and a really bad idea. So the dead missed the fire festival, but... Yeah, you... but we went. <laughs> yeah, the Olympic team was contracted to do the PA and uh-huh. the live recording for all the music segments, and they couldn't get out of the contract, so they had to go. Yikes. And I was excited by the adventure. <laughs> of I course. mean, I really wanted to go just for fun. Yeah. And so we all went, and uh, it was a month of craziness, ended up in England. That's right. And by the time we came back, the Olympic folks and I had become very close, and they offered me a job. That's awesome. And it also kind of kept you within the Grateful Dead family, although the caravan seems to have been an opportunity for you to kind of break out of that for a little while. That must have felt good. It was really good for me, especially after 
four years of being with Phil. Yeah. You know, what yeah. else was I? Well, nobody knew. Nobody asked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it was good for me to get out there and do my own thing. Yeah. And that's what I really love about your book. It's kind of a mid 20th century coming of age story in some ways. And there's so much like exploration and excitement and discovery in it along the way but it's bittersweet too i mean it has its share of heartbreak this was the free love era and some of the emotional complications that arise from that don't get talked about a lot but you kind of reveal them through your own story in a way that i think is really meaningful you know if you take out the middle section the four years that i was with phil and i was part of a couple and and i talk about the free love aspect of that in my book as much as I'm ever going to. Uh So let's just put that aside. (laughs) But, you know, prior to meeting Phil and after I was with Phil, I was a single young woman in this incredible environment. And the pill was ours for contraception. Right. AIDS wasn't yet a factor. You could have sex without a condom and it wasn't a possible death sentence. You know, all those years among musicians, artists, actors, and all of us, casual sex with friends was no big deal. Right. You know, the dead saying, we can share the women, we can share the wine. (laughs) It's a little bit condescending and funny sometimes, but here's the other side of that coin. We can share the men, we can share the weed. (laughs) And that's it for the first season of Dead to Me. Be sure to check out rosiemcgee.com for more info on her book, Dancing with the Dead, and much more. I also want to thank all the guests who joined us this season, and I especially want to thank you for listening. We'll be back after a short break. In the meantime, get caught up on episodes at our website, deadtomepod.com. Drop us a line at info at deadtomepod.com and follow our socials at deadtomepod on Twitter and Facebook. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.